back uh looks like my interview here runs about 20 minutes so uh for the next eight or nine uh let's talk about other stuff in the past we've been pretty tough on the college student of today and rest assured we're going to do the same here in a couple minutes and rest assured we're going to do more of that in a couple minutes but before i do so i do want to compliment the young people in florida who have taken this tragedy of the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida, and are, and are using this to galvanize young people to go out and protest, to to induce a campaign to change our gun laws, to see if if this slaughter cannot be reduced and halted. Students and parents alike are turning their rage into activism, and this we applaud. Every time another mass murder takes place in one of our schools, politicians seem to want to offer hopes and prayers, which I think it's clear enough by now are not, uh, are not uh, uh, accomplishing very much. All right, there's three magazines we tend to rely upon for the production of this program. It would be The Week, The Economist, and New Scientist. The latter two are British publications, it might be noted, and The Week started out that way. The Economist, in an article about Steve Bannon receiving an invitation to come talk at the University of Chicago, had this to say. In recent years, the University of Chicago has styled itself the Academy's leading defender of free speech. In 2015, a committee chaired by Jeff Stone of Chicago's law school restated its principles on the matter. Quote, it is not the proper role of the university to attempt to shield individuals from ideas and opinions they find unwelcome, disagreeable, or even deeply offensive. Concerns about civility and mutual respect can never be used as justification for closing off discussion of ideas, however offensive or disagreeable. That statement has since been adopted by more than 30 other universities. In 2016, the Dean of Students said in a letter to freshmen, quote, our commitment to academic freedom means that we do not support so-called trigger warnings. We do not cancel invited speakers because their topics might prove controversial. We do not condone the creation of intellectual, quote, safe spaces, unquote, where individuals can retreat from ideas and perspectives at odds with their own. The magazine noted that so far, the, uh, the debate about Bannon's appearance at the University of Chicago has been civilized. The magazine posed the question, does this suggest the debate over free speech on campus is becoming more civilized? Nicholas Christakis, professor at Yale University, is not so sure about that. He and his wife, Erica, were hounded after Mr. Christakis said in an email written in 2015 that students might be allowed to pick and police their own Halloween costumes. Christakis said young people's illiberal opinions about freedom of expression and their incredible identitarianism are on the rise. 
The magazine notes that data from a general social survey suggests that there has been no overall rise in intolerance among students. Rather, it seems about a fifth of students think that unfettered free speech is something to fight against. And that on some campuses, including Yale, their activism has a chilling effect on everyone else. New scientists got involved in this uh, topic in the latest issue in an article titled Analysis, Trigger Warnings with the headline Alert may contain science. The piece by Jessica Bond had the sub-headline, Talk of Trigger Warnings and Microaggressions Has Taken Over University Campuses. Do they have any psychological basis? The article poses the question of whether trigger warnings and microaggression policies can help prevent real psychological harm. The article notes that trigger warnings originated online as a way to alert people with post-traumatic stress disorder that what they were about to see might trigger distressing flashbacks. They are now being used in universities as a heads-up to students that they might find course material upsetting. The article acknowledges that people with PTSD can experience added anxieties and such with certain stimuli. So they said there may be a clinical basis for giving individually tailored warnings to diagnose students who know their triggers, akin to allowing students with conditions like ADHD extra time in exams, but requests for warnings go far beyond this. According to a survey by the U.S. National Coalition Against Censorship, students want warning for subjects such as race, sexual orientation, disability, and colonialism. Guy Boysden at McKendree University in Illinois said people use the phrase trigger warning in relation to anything that might upset you or you might have trouble with. That's a 100% separate thing. The article quotes an Arno Kumagai, described as vice president of education at the University of Toronto's Department of Medicine, as saying, words can be traumatic. A discussion on racism that uses explicit racist language can traumatize people in a similar way to PTSD flashbacks, he said, apparently without providing any supporting evidence. The article also quotes psychologist Daryl Wing Sue from Columbia University, as defining microaggression as an everyday slight that invokes negative attitudes towards a minority group, comma, whether intended or not, period. And evidently some universities are using Sue's work to develop awareness programs. Scott Lillenfield, a psychologist at Emory University in Atlanta, says the science is far from certain. In a paper published last year, he criticized the subjective nature of microaggressions saying if someone is convinced that they've been microaggressed against, they have. Adding later that the warning may be sensitizing to students who wouldn't normally be sensitized to those things. Right now, we just don't know. Kind of startled to read later in the same piece that Daryl Wing Sue is not buying any of this. He claims the science is clear and it's time to act saying, quote, thousands of studies have established that microaggressions are real, that they do great harm to the targets, and that we need to concentrate on anti-racism strategies, unquote. Yeah, thousands of studies. Can you cite one or two? Anyway, Sue goes on to say, waiting for scientific certainty that a program reduces prejudice is a luxury that people who are affected by microaggressions don't have. Sue and and colleagues, and, and I'm not making this up, are apparently developing micro-interventions 
subtle or overt strategies to counteract microaggressions, such as immediately expressing disapproval, enabling the receiver to feel in control and reduce ruminations about what they could have said. Micro-interventions against microaggressions. The article closes with a quote from a Glenn Bass saying that the free speech defense gets rolled out in favor of controversial viewpoints, but students making their own concerns heard are also exercising their freedom of speech. She says it's to everyone's benefit that we continue to believe that open discourse and debate is healthier for the society as a whole, but it's important to make sure that everyone actually believes that rather than feeling like they have been badgered into going along with it. Yeah, to my mind, that sounds like quite a bit of microaggression. My suggested micro-intervention is that we continue to assume that open discourse and debate are healthier for the society as a whole, and if there's someone out there who doesn't actually believe that, they can kiss my ass. Oh, that opinion, by the way, like all those heard in this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, its sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. Anyway, let us bring back our good friend, investigator James Diogenio, to continue his talk begun several weeks back on many topics near and dear to us. All right, a couple of weeks back, we had an interesting chat, as we always do, with our good friend James Diogenio about the post and related uh, bits of, shall we say, uh, real history, what really took place, as opposed to what you see on the silver screen. And uh, we meant to talk at that time about the late, great, Robert Perry, but didn't have time to do so, so we're having him come back to do that on today's program. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Jim DiEugenio. Glad to be here. Now, you worked for Robert Perry at Consortium News. For about six years. And and can you talk a bit about, like, what it does? I mean, I, we, we certainly complimented on this program on many occasions, sent people to the website uh, whenever possible, but talk a bit about how, you know, this thing developed because it had to. Bob Perry had been a very distinguished journalist for quite a few years, beginning in the late 70s um, through the 80s and into the 90s. And he worked for, for example, Associated Press. He worked for Newsweek. He worked for Bloomberg Press. He worked for PBS. And as time went on, he got more and more... Uh, upset and frustrated with the limitations that were put on his stories. And to go back and look at the things that Bob Perry broke for the first time is a litany of achievement that I really believe for the time period was second to nobody. It was, it's really a kind of amazing roll call when you take a look at what this guy did. He was really an honest and very good journalist, you know, who really wanted to tell the American people the truth about what was happening in their name. And so he finally decided that he couldn't do that anymore in the mainstream media. By the way, he cashed in his retirement policy to do this. He began his own uh, pub- online publication called The Consortium, and He ran that from 1995 until when he passed away last month. The thing about Bob is that he really didn't care what your credentials were. What he cared about most 
was, did you do the homework? Did you do the research? Were you informing his audience about something they didn't know before? You know? And the more hard-hitting, the better. And so I first started writing for him in, in 2011. All right, and it was, I remember the first piece I wrote for him. It was a review of the Clint Eastwood movie, J. Edgar, all right, which I didn't like very much. And everybody was praising, or most everybody was praising. And he published my piece, and that began my working relationship with him. See, the, the thing about Bob, and this is really, you know, I really have to say, to actually go ahead and, number one, drop a lucrative career in the mainstream press, number one. And number two, to then go up against the grain, to actually do battle with them for what, over 20 years. It's, it's really an exceptional achievement. I really can't think of anybody else who matched that. I'm fascinated by the fact that he really, I think in the end he was quoted as saying, you can't really get that close to your sources. Sources will come to you, to paraphrase, but you can't trust them. So you'll, you'll be sorry if you do. And I thought, wow, that, that's, a really, that's very insightful. He, he was talking there about the fact that when he was in the mainstream media, for example, at Newsweek, he did not like cocktail parties, the tete-a-tetes, that his editors put on with people like Dick Cheney. And, and, and this was, of course, during the whole Iran-Contra scandal. And there's a very famous story he told about that, in which he's sitting across the table from Cheney, and his boss, his managing editor, is sitting next to him. And they were talking about the fact that Poindexter, National Security Advisor, was going to testify. And he could have implicated Reagan. And Cheney said words of the effect that even if Poindexter did tell Reagan about the whole thing, he should say he didn't. And Bob Perry said words of the effect, you're saying that he should commit perjury? And his boss is sitting next to him, says, well, sometimes we have to do things for the good of the country. His boss said that? Yeah. Oh. And, Ch and Cheney echoed it. He said, the good of the country. And so Bob said that became the mantra about Iran-Contra. We have to squelch this thing for the good of the country. Uh, but if you got somebody like Dick Cheney telling you what the good of the country is, What's that worth? Okay. <laughs> well, that, that, is, that is very interesting because Perry certainly did his part to, uh, to dig in and, and, and alert the public as to what the heck was going on in these various permutations of the, the Iranians and the, the Contras in Nicaragua and, and uh, money and arms. One of the greatest things he did is he really sunk his teeth into the whole arms for hostages deal. And he didn't want to let go of it because I think there's a big, big story here. Because the more he traced when the weapons started being shipped to the Middle East, he said, wait a minute, I don't think this begins in 1985. 
And he got more and more information about it. And that's the basis for his two PBS specials on the October surprise. Yes, he got a lot of flack for that. I'm sure you would agree he was undoubtedly right. In case your listeners don't understand what that means, it was essentially this, that people like uh, Bill Casey, uh, who was the campaign manager you know, for Ronald Reagan, arranged an illicit deal between the United States, Israel, and the, the radicals in Iran not to let the hostages leave until after the election, thereby depriving Carter of a big boost in the polls. Yes. And when, as everyone knows, I'm sure you recall, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the first hostages left within, what was it, 10 minutes of Reagan's inauguration? I, as I recall, Jim, the hostages described their captors looking at their watch. <laughs> and, and when it was inauguration time in Washington, D.C., they opened the jail door. That's, that was what I heard. That is exactly what happened. And so Perry... Uh, went ahead and did these two lengthy, very well-researched reports saying that this was a done deal. They essentially did it to steal the election. We should note, too, that one, one of the alleged conspirators in this little affair was the future president, George Herbert Walker Bush. Correct. To say that he was odd man out on this issue, I mean, a front-page story in Newsweek attacking him, a front-page story in the New Republic attacking him. Yeah, when you, when you read about it today, it'll be referred to oftentimes as, well, there's this, there's this conspiracy theory out there about this. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, but Bob, Bob com continued to research that story. And i got to say that at the end of the day, when I read his stuff on this, I have to agree with him. I really think it probably did happen. You know, I give him all the credit in the world for that. You know, it was a wonderful story. Yes, and, and of course, all the work he did with, with Iran, I mean, with, with the whole situation later later in the 86, I guess, Iran-Contra, he was, like, central to all of that. And, you, and by the way, that's one of the reasons he left Newsweek, because he wanted to cover the trial of Oliver North. He wanted to, he, in other words, he wanted to do the old thing, have Newsweek send him to trial, get him a hotel room, and he covers a trial day after day, day after day, week after week, month yeah. after month. Yeah. And he said they wouldn't let him do it. Hmm. They didn't want to do it. Probably wow. for the good of the country. Sure. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and let's not forget the other thing he did. Going back in history, the first October surprise, which happened in 1968, this is when Lyndon Johnson finally convinced that there was no way he was going to win the Vietnam War, yeah. decides to devote his last months in office to getting some kind of truce and some negotiations. Richard Nixon, who's the Republican candidate, thinks that this is all political and that it's going to help elect Hubert Humphrey, Johnson's vice president. Which is probably true. Well, I'm not sure if it's all political. I think No, no I'm, really I'm not saying it was all political, but I think that it yeah. certainly would have given Hubert Humphrey a right. huge boost. So he goes to work behind the scenes, him and John Mitchell, and they arrange for 
a back channel between Anna Chenault, who was a very high-level Republican lobbyist at this time, and the South Vietnamese ambassador, Bui Dem. And they get a message to President Tu in Saigon to resist Johnson's overtures for a peace plan. And to say that he came through for them does not even really begin to describe what he did, because I think it was three days before the election, President Tu held a press conference in Saigon, which was covered by ABC, NBC, and CBS. And if you're as old as I am, you will understand that if you got all three of those networks there, you got just about everybody in the United States looking at it. Right. Okay, because that's all there was right. back then. And so he went on a 27-minute speech <laughs> three days before the election saying he is not going to go along with this peace plan overture because it would sell out his government. And Nixon understood from that moment, as most of his advisors did, that this guy just won the election for them. And so what happened, of course, is that Johnson understood something's really going on here. And so he put the FBI and the CIA on the trail, and they figured it out that it was began with Nixon, went down to Mitchell, Anna Chenault was a part of it, all right, and they had worked a deal, you know, with the government of Saigon to sandbag him. Now, this is a violation of the law called the Logan Act, which prohibits private citizens from interfering with American diplomacy. And so Johnson had the goods on him, but as Bob Perry later found out, going to the Johnson Library, he found something called the X envelope. Johnson decided to put it all on a file and give it to Walt Rostow, and they decided to bury the story. All right? Again, I guess it's for the good of the country. Well, my, I, my understanding is that, that Johnson basically regarded it as treason, as, as many do today, and thought about going after Nixon and realized that, well, that'd be, that would be bad for the country, if you can believe that. That's what I, that's what I yes. read. I think we both all understand the best thing that could have happened was that Nixon not be elected president, <laughs> considering what he was about to do. All right? so, so anyway... What happens is that this gets buried at the Johnson Library, and Bob Perry discovers it many, many years later. But the other part of the story that Bob Perry discovered was this, that Hoover, that is the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, told Nixon what Johnson had done. All right? And so approaching his re-election bid, I think this was in 71, on the tapes, of which nobody's ever been able to figure this out until Bob did, Nixon talks about firebombing the Brookings Institute, sending in fire trucks and blowing the safe. Right. And nobody knew what that meant. And finally, Bob Perry figured this out, that a young right-wing zealot on his staff named named Tom Houston, 
had give, been given the assignment by Nixon and Mitchell to find out where the file was. And after an extensive investigation, he came to the wrong conclusion that it was at the Brookings Institute. So that's what that was all about. All right. And that was the beginning of the plumber's unit. It, indeed. Indeed it was. And I, you, when you say that, Jim, it makes me laugh because I, I, just, I just flashed on thinking back to that time when, when this was first coming out. And there was a, a lot of head scratching going on of like, my God. He was going to firebomb the Brookings Institute, and there was kind of a "what the hell" behind that. And I guess that's—I guess Bob Perry figured out what what the hell was. Yeah, I mean, if you just lay it out there, it sort of reminds you of the Nazis firebombing the Reichstag. You know, what did that mean? All right, you know, what did that mean? He wants to fire. Well, now we know what happened. He was that worried about you know going ahead and being exposed for how he is subverted. Johnson's attempt to get a peace treaty. I mean, that shows you just what, you know, what we were up against with this guy. It'd be nice to think that it was the karma that came back to him for what he pulled in 68, that, that Watergate and, and a lot of the, the paranoia about, about things that were going on uh, was tied together. I'd like to think that. One of the things that Mob tried to say in his, um, in his many, many years of work there is that even when the Democrats had the goods on the Republicans... They still wouldn't go, you know, the whole nine yards in showing just how bad they were. And he really thought that that was kind of dumb in a lot of different ways. And so I, I kind of agree with him on this. I know Johnson probably didn't understand how bad Nixon was going to be, you know, but he had to have <laughs> some bet, animation. I think he had some idea. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I mean, to be specific, Nixon did not get out of Vietnam. He expanded the war into Cambodia. Absolutely, yeah. He made it an air war that made more money for the Pentagon, the people that supplied the Pentagon, but put f fewer lives at risk in the ground war. But it, it really, he didn't end the war by any stretch. But he killed more civilians. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, he did. You know? I mean, look what happened in Cambodia. You know, that, the, 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 that was more or less a genocide, almost. I don't know if you know, but they had trials on this. And they did very strong investigations. The figure given in William Shaw Cross's book, Sideshow, was that a million people died because of what Nixon and Kissinger had done. Well, that is wrong today. He, the, those trials estimated it was much, much higher, closer to two million, because of the Paul Pot Khmer Rouge takeover. Yeah. Well, back in, in 2012, when I was coming back home from watching an eclipse in Australia, I came through Southeast Asia and went to Laos and had to, had to think when I'm in this incredibly rural third world country, this is the place we dropped more ordnance on than in all of, the, all of Europe in World War II? Yes. Mind-boggling. It, it, it really is when you think about it. As, as, as Kennedy said, how are we going to commit hundreds of thousands of combat troops to fight a war in a jungle. But that's what they did. It wasn't, for Nixon, it wasn't good enough with Vietnam. He had to expand it over Cambodia and into Laos, too. Well, thank God for people like Robert Perry who took a look at what, you know, the, the same old, same old, same old going on in Central America and, and geopolitics and, and stepped up to do something about it. Now that he's gone, is, is someone stepping up to, to continue to run it? It looks like... His assistant, Kelsey Gilmore, and his son, Nat, 
are going to try and keep it going. So I really encourage anybody who's listening to do as much as you can, give yeah. him some exposure. The great thing about Bob, he didn't carry advertising, so he wasn't beholden to anybody. He, he ran the whole thing because of the contributions from people who appreciated his work, which I guess a lot of people did because he kept it going for quite a long time. I think most of the people listening to Radio Parallax will like to work over there. Yeah, I'm sure they will. We plugged him many times. We plugged you over there on many occasions. Jim, it's always a pleasure. Come, let's talk about more stuff here in the weeks to come. Sure. All right. Bye-bye. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.